If you've been with us this past summer, um, you all know that we have been going over the book of Judges, uh, which is a great and eye-opening book uh, and a great reminder of what it looks like when God is not made king of our hearts. But we have an opportunity today to share more about uh, something that's been on my heart uh, and, and a topic that I think all of us kind of actually need to hear on this Labor Day weekend, which is the topic of rest, topic of rest. And so, yeah, people are excited. Uh, okay, let's settle down. All right, now Matthews, we'll be in Matthews 11, 28 through 30. We'll be in Matthews 11, 28 through 30. Let me uh, read this and then uh, pray, and then we'll get ourselves started with this. Matthew 11, if you need a Bible, anyone need a Bible, the, our lovely ushers are handing them out for you as well. So verse 28, it reads, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, such three simple verses, but yet so hard to do in our own lives. I pray, oh God, that as we um, hear your word, that God, you may take away all distractions around us. You may help us to focus on who you are, um, our true rest. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I've titled my sermon, uh, Letting Go of Your Labor, which is because it's Labor Day, you know. Um, and as Labor Day comes, many of us kind of start a new season. Fall is always the start of new season. For CPS, they start uh, to, not tomorrow, but Tuesday as well. And so for my wife and I, we are actually entering into, hopefully in about three to four weeks, a new season as well. Many of you all know and have graciously supported us, given us advice on welcoming our first uh, child, our baby boy, in about three to four weeks. And we are extremely excited, yet terrified at the same time. And we're, we're thankful that you, or as a community, we have uh, you to help us with that. But you know, as a kind of first time upcoming parent, our temptation is, well, mine especially, is to get ready and get prepared the best that I can. To do all that I can to get ready, so that when the baby comes, we're like, we have everything in order. So uh, we found ourselves, we, we went to um, Bye Bye Baby, baby like, superstore, and trial tested all these kinds of different baby items, strollers, carriers, monitors, and the list is quite endless as well. And so we put the best ones on our baby registry. Then we went online, and mainly my wife uh, read many different kinds of blogs online of what it meant to be pregnant, what it meant to give birth, what it meant to be a mother after birth, and how to take care of a baby and make sure it's go doing well. And then even I found online on this YouTube channel where it helps dads how to be good dads and take care of your baby. Like, for example, there's a video on how to properly hold your baby, because if you know me, I don't like holding babies in general, and so I needed some coaching on how to hold the baby, not like a football, which I am used to doing, but like an actual child and a human being, and so that has been very helpful for me. Uh, and then even this past weekend, last weekend, we were at an, an, a Lamaze class for two six-hour sessions, very helpful, but a lot, again, a lot more details on what to do during birth and how to support your, the mother during the pregnancy and the birth as well. You know, even now, I'm constantly asking my wife, do we, do we need anything else? Do we need anything else? 
Are you feeling okay? Shouldn't we get our hospital bag, our go bag ready just in case it might come? Which she lovingly responds to me, Noah, you need to chill out, which I, I try to do. I, I try to do. And as a future dad, though, I've, I've kind of felt this uh, insecurity or inadequacy or this lack of busyness that I'm not actually doing enough to be ready for my child. I feel like I should be doing more. But a while ago, my mom visited about three, like I think three months ago, and she told me, she kind of put me aside and gently, like a good mother always does, told me this, that Noah, you know, it's great that you're buying all these baby things, um, throwing a baby shower, taking these classes, but don't forget, spend some time resting. You know, speak to your baby, pray for him, even sing, she even said sing songs to him. Because remember, you are doing absolutely nothing right now to grow and sustain the baby. God is doing and will do all the work. After that, she took her mic, she dropped it, and just walked away. <laughs> you know, for us, maybe it's not getting ready for a baby, but maybe it's getting ready for something else. We are very preoccupied and busy people. We are trying to accomplish so many things, work really hard, and do a lot of things. Not bad things, but just a lot. And many of us are so busy, and as we enter uh, the day after Labor Day, it's kind of go, go, go. But we simply forget to ignore what we should do, which is rest. To step back, breathe, and rest. You know, in this, in scripture, this idea of rest is actually very countercultural to what I believe our society views as rest. And hopefully in this passage, I'll kind of shed some light on what Jesus sees as rest for us. And so to do that, I have three questions to ask you all and to even for myself. First, what's wrong with us? Second, what should we do? And then third, what is then promised? What is then promised? And hopefully I'll answer the question and I'll help us see that true rest always starts and ends with Jesus. True rest always starts and ends with Jesus. So let's go to our first question. What's wrong with us? In verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Actually, I think a better, more helpful translation for us is given in the message translation, which it reads, Are you tired? worn out, burned out on religion. Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Simply put, the, real, the actual reason why that's, that's wrong, what's wrong with us, the question is what's wrong with us, the reason why what's wrong with us is that we are tired. We are tired. Why? Because Jesus who sees us, says that we are all who labor and are heavy laden. This notion actually carries this, this type of picture that we're working with just extreme weight on our shoulders, that we're so exhausted, both physically and mentally, because the weight of our work here on earth is just too heavy. Within the context of this passage, though, scholars actually think that Jesus is making a direct correlation to the heavy burdens our weights that the Pharisees were putting on the Jewish people. You see, in the context of the text, the, Pharisee in, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were highly religious people, and through their traditions and through the Torah, they instituted some 613 mandatory laws for everyone to follow. 
And if someone would break one of those laws, more requirements would be put upon them and also to punish them. You know, this law was given by God, so it was not wrong in and of itself. It was actually good. But what the Pharisees did was made the law very impossible to follow. They made it a very legalistic type of religion for them to follow that actually benefited them more than the common people that it was supposed to serve. But for everyone else who was following this law, they felt like the law became these boulders, one small boulder, all 613 of them being constantly put on their back. It was literally crushing them. It made them worn out, tired, and heavy laden. You know, today, what's wrong with us is probably not this overtly religious code, but I don't want to ignore that there are other religions, and sadly, even the church at times has put a very heavy burden on the people, which Jesus is not wanting to do. But for many of us, there is a different weight that is crushing us down. There is a different weight that is prohibiting us from entering true rest. What is it? It is fear. It is the fear that if we don't keep doing, working, preparing, being busy, that we will lose what we most long for. Let me explain. There is this old-time movie, I think older than me, uh, called Chariots of Fire. And it's a true story of uh, two Olympians in Paris who competed in 1924. One of them is Eric Liddell, who was a Christian. And he actually refused to race the final 100-meter dash because it was on a Sunday, even though he was the favorite to win. The other favorite was this man named Harold Abrahams. And throughout the entire movie, you see his intense determination to win that same gold medal. But unlike Liddell, Abrahams was doing it out of a need to prove himself. So at one point, speaking of the sprint event in which he was going to race, Abraham said this. He said, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. 10 seconds to justify my existence. Liddell, on the other hand, he felt accepted, okay, knowing that this race was just a race, even though it was a gold medal race. And so he actually decides to take a break because it was the Sabbath. So Abraham's, knowing that Liddell stopped, he keeps working and working relentlessly, knowing that he needed to win this race. And at the end, he goes on the 100-meter dash in 10 seconds or less. He finishes. He gets first, gets that gold medal. He's excited. Oh, this affirmation. He feels justified. But at the end of the movie, there is still this restlessness in him. And the question is asked, was this enough? Was this enough? For Harold Abrahams, his greatest fear was not so much of losing the race or losing the gold medal, but his fear was more about losing what the race represented. It represented his purpose, his work. So if he failed in those 10 seconds, his fear would be that all that he's done, all that he's worked for, all his life means would be wasted, would be worthless, and his life would be purposeless. Church, what is that one thing or that one dream you are most afraid to lose? What is that one thing you are most afraid to lose? Is it the respect or the salary that you get from your job or from your title? Is it the affirmation and love that you get from your family or your community or those who like you? 
Is it the control and the comfort that you have in your schedule? Is it your safety? Is it other relationships? Is it your health? Or is it like Abraham's? Is it losing your very purpose? Fear is the ultimate motivator of having a restless life. It drives us to work as hard as we can, to go as fast as we can, to be as busy as we can, because we don't want to lose that one thing that we are afraid to so desperately hold on to and we don't want to lose. And that one thing that we are holding on to, Scripture, it calls it an idol. An idol is something that we can absolutely not live without. It's ultimately what we serve and why we cannot find our rest. And if we ultimately worship and serve these fear-induced idols, what does that make us? That makes us slaves. It makes us slaves to that idol. We become our slaves. And let me tell you, church, slaves don't get no vacations. They don't get rest because we're constantly serving this idol and we're not wanting rest until we get it. Which leads me now to my second question. So then what should we do? What should we do? Jesus gives us one word to start, and the word is come. Come to me. But I'm sure many of you are asking this question, what does Jesus mean when he says come? Well, if you look back in chapter 11, so the same chapter we're in, in verse 24, Jesus says this in a prayer before he talks about this rest passage. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Little children. Children, unlike adults, know when they are in need. They know, you know when they're hungry. You know when they're tired. You know when they're upset or when they're angry or when they really need something from their mommy and daddy. And they won't be afraid to come to their mommy or daddy. So when Jesus sees us, He's saying the same thing as a parent to a child. Come, come to me with anything and everything you have. Sleep in my arms, vent in my arms, cry in my arms. For some of us, we actually need to know that we need rest. I don't have time to kind of go deep into that, but some of us don't think we need it. But in actuality, Jesus is saying, come, you need my rest. But there's more. He tells us there's more. If we look at this verb come, it actually is used in uh, the book of Matthew and other places too. If we go back to actually Matthew 4, 19, where Jesus calls his disciples, it says this. And he said to them, follow me, which is actually the same word as come. And I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Jesus is saying that you shouldn't just be just like children and come to me, but that you that I am actually inviting you into a discipleship relationship. You know, discipleship is a fancy word to explain when someone who is following, who is modeling, and helping others become more like the person that they are actually following, which in our case is Jesus. And in verse 29, Jesus specifies for us what exactly this discipleship picture should look like. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You know, a yoke for us urbanites, I had actually no idea what a yoke was until I actually went to seminary and then looked at a picture of it, which is behind me as well, um, is a wooden cross piece that is fastened over the neck of two animals and is attached to them and then to the plow so they can pull it as they farm 
um, in those times. Remember, back then, they didn't have any John Deere tractors, so they needed animals to push that thing around. So when Jesus tells us to take his yoke, he is telling us to take whatever burdens we have on this earth, whatever work we have, literally set it down and to put on the yoke with him and to learn from him. You know, imagine this. Imagine an, an older ox, strong, very big, very experienced, and very old on one part of the yoke. Then imagine another animal, a calf, a young, I don't know, cow, I guess you would call it, <laughs> a young bull who is learning the ropes, who's weak, small, gentle, and very inexperienced. And then so the young calf looks out to the field and the task they have in front of him, and he's scared. He has no idea what he is doing. This land is so vast, and he is afraid that he is going to make a mistake. This older, more experienced, stronger ox, he then leads the way. And so then this calf is scared. He doesn't know what to do. He has to somehow plow and be on this yoke with this older, older ox. So what does he do? The only thing he can do is literally watch what the older ox does. Step by step, step by step. He can, and though he is so worried that one wrong step for him might move the plow or might tip it over, the older ox knows that because he is the older one, the stronger one, the more experienced one, he holds most or almost entirely all the weight. And the young calf, all he's doing is just walking step by step, step by step. Church, this is what a picture of discipleship is. It's simply walking step by step with Jesus, who is the older, more experienced, stronger ox, and we are all young. And what Jesus wants for us as a disciple is actually found later in the, in the book of Matthew in chapter 16, verse 24 and 25. He tells this of what a disciple should be. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That same word again, follow me. Whoever would lose or save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When we take on Jesus' yoke, our entire life is directed by him and for him. We become more like him. We are more holy like him. We talk like him. We work like him. We love like him. And we prioritize his mission, his goal, and glorify him alone. So this is what discipleship is supposed to look like in all of our lives. So for Jesus, he not only says, come to me, but he also says, follow me. It's a continuation of the journey and the relationship that we have with Christ. But as I look at all of us here and wonder, why do we then have to work? Isn't rest the absence of work? So then why is Jesus telling us here to take upon this yoke? That seems like hard work. I don't really like hard work. Well, if um, in, the, in, the, in 2017, there was a study that came out, and it approximated that in the past year, 2017, that Americans alone, one country, spent over $100 billion on vacations alone. That's $100 billion on vacations, which is actually the highest amount and more than any other country in the world. But what's even more interesting is that out of every advanced country in the world, Americans 
have or take the least amount of vacation days. I think on average, it's like one to two weeks, mainly out of fear of losing their jobs or because they are just overworked and they have to get things. But then we have, so we spend the most on our vacations as a country, but then we have the least amount of time off to use it. What does that mean? Well, I think out of the many things, I think one thing it means for us is that we work so hard and so relentlessly that when we get that sliver of rest, that one moment breath of rest, our temptation is to throw as much money as we can so that we can have this amazing, life-changing, Instagram-worthy picture for our rest. We hope that we can literally buy back the rest we lost and the rest of the other 50 or 51 weeks in our time. But what happens when you come back from vacation? What happens when the weather is just a little bit too cold for you? When you have unpaid bills? When a screaming child is demanding your attention? Or you have a full inbox that demands your attention as well? That weight you left at home in your vacation comes right back on. And that rest that you longed for, it might have been just temporary, but it's still back and you don't have rest any longer. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that vacations or going on vacation is wrong or evil. Please go on vacations, it's good. But what I am saying is that there is a belief that in our culture, in our society, that rest can only be achieved if I get away and if I don't work. But if you shatter your leg and just pop a bunch of Advil pills just to get that better, would that ultimately work for you and heal your leg? There's many doctors in this room, so probably not, okay? Advil only temporarily masks or hides the pain that really is going on. And for just like that, for us, many of our rest tactics that we try to use or implement are, are just like Advil pills. They just kind of hide or distract us from the real rest we need while there's a bigger and much-needed type of rest that we are longing for in our own hearts, in our own minds. So Jesus' solution to us is to come. Come to me. Follow me. Be my disciple. And he tells us that as his disciple, that the work, it's not, you're not going to be exempt from work, but that your work will be more manageable in him. Which leads me to my last question. What is promised? What is promised if we ultimately come to Jesus and follow him? When we come to Jesus, Jesus promises us at the end of verse 29 that we will find rest for our souls. Rest for our souls. He promises us a never-ending, eternal rest. But how? How does he promise this? In the, if you go back much further in the Old Testament, we see that time after time, Jesus, is, or Jesus or God is protecting and rescuing his people Israel. And he is wanting for them to enter his rest. He is constantly trying to save them so that they can enter his rest. But what, what do we see? Like just in the book of Judges last week, what do we see? They are rebellious. They disobey. They sin. And they seek their rest in other idols or other gods that they think can satisfy their rest. Israel was unable to enter God's rest because of their sin. And as history goes on, and even for us today, though we have temporary moments of rest or vacations, sin prohibits all of us from entering true, eternal rest that Jesus is talking about here. So Jesus, in this passage, knowing something had to be done differently. Something has to be done differently. 
So God the Father sends his son Jesus in the flesh, and he lived, breathed, and ministered, and he promised his followers in verse 29 that he will be gentle and lowly in heart. His first, promises, his first promise to us is that eternal rest starts with the new master. Unlike, unlike our earthly bosses who demand, who control, or even may abuse us, Jesus promises us to be gentle. He promises us to be kind and merciful. Unlike people in the world that value pride and power and profit, Jesus promises peace, humility, and justice. And unlike the idols that enslave us, Jesus promises us hope, grace, and even freedom. But Jesus offers much more than that as well. He offers himself. Even as he is telling his disciples and the Pharisees in this passage about this new type of rest, Jesus knew that at this moment, this rest was not yet complete. He knew that sin and internal rest laid in between them a chasm so deep and wide that none of us who have sin could ever enter God's eternal rest. And so months and months later, he had to do something about it. So he set his eyes on Jerusalem, and he got to work. And his work was not done in power or might, but his work was done as just as he said, in gentleness and humility. Upon entry to that town, he was arrested. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was beaten and whipped. Talk, talk about a bad work circumstance. People cursed him. People hated him. People wanted him to die. Though Jesus created the whole world with one word, and even though he could usher in an entire army to defend his cause, he remained silent and let humanity condemn him to his death. But not just any death, a death on a cross. The most excruciating and humiliating punishment only fit for a criminal. And then they stripped him. They nailed him to the cross, the king of the world. And when life was just about to exit him, he yelled, it is finished. And by his dying breath, the chasm that separated us from eternal rest and sin, it got a little bit closer. And then on the third day, he defeated sin and death, and he completed that work on the cross. So that when we come to Jesus, there is no longer a chasm that exists between us, but there is a hope that we can enter into his eternal rest. Church, we can rest because Jesus has done the ultimate work for us. We no longer live under the idols or the authorities of this world, but we live under the authority of a humble and gentle boss, and his name is Jesus. You know, um, upon graduating college, uh, I had to get a job, like everyone else, uh, I got a job. And because I majored in sociology, it was very difficult to find a job. And so I took a job as a customer service uh, slash like marketing position at a very small company uh, that sold text, test prep books, kind of like Kaplan or like Princeton Review, but we were much, much smaller. 
And back then, uh, you know, I wasn't the most outgoing or charismatic individual like I am today, of course. Um, I, I was a bit awkward. I was a bit, uh, you know, very not confident. And so I was terrible on the phone. I was terrible talking to people. Uh, I didn't know how to market very well. I mean, I studied sociology, so it might have helped a little bit. But, um, and I also really couldn't tell which prep book was which. I mean, talk about the amount of prep books there are. There are tons of prep books. Free information just for you guys. Um, but I remember one experience, uh, one experience at work. We were planning a promotional dinner for uh, many clients of ours, or potential clients, and we had about 75 people ready to come. And these were high kind of status people in our line of work. They were principals and, super, and superintendent of district offices. And so and they had a lot of choices to buy potential textbooks from our company. And so we had about 75 people signed up, which is a lot for a small company. Uh, and so we put a lot of time, a lot of money in this presentation and in this dinner. But on the night of the event, only half showed up. So our boss, our team, we're like kind of bewildered. We're, why, why is no one here? What went wrong? So we go back to work the next day, and our boss just lays it out on us. He's like, what was wrong with you guys? Why is there only 40 people here when we spend this much money and this and that? And then we eventually find out that one of the things that we didn't do out of the many things was that I had forgotten to call and remind all the principals and superintendents for that particular event. I didn't really like the phone very much, so maybe I intentionally forgot about it, but I forgot about it. And my boss laid it on me as well. I never felt the most shame, and I, I never felt like a failure as much as that point, because I had just graduated college. I, just, I was a fresh working person. I just felt so ashamed and I felt like I had failed in my work and that I was worthless. But jumping forward, uh, after about eight months, I decided that, you know, this job is not really for me. And so I actually decided to take uh, a different ministry job, and, which actually involved raising support. And on the last day, a few hours before my, uh, I was about to go and be free, my boss comes up to me to my cubicle. He, uh, he puts his arms around me and he says, Noah, you know, I really enjoyed working with you. I really appreciate what you did here. Um, you know, here's actually a small check, a small gift to get your support raising started. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. Great job. And if you know me, one of my amazing spiritual gifts is holding back tears. And at that moment, I held back all the tears I could. Because my boss, who had yelled at me, said that I did a good job, and that feeling was just overwhelming. Church... If my earthly, imperfect boss, who I believe, I don't think actually was a Christ follower, could do such a humble and gracious act for me, even though I sucked at my job, how much more will Jesus, our perfect and gentle Savior, do for us as we walk with him, as we're, as we're little calves trying to figure the way out, we stumble, fall here. How much does, will Jesus be gracious to us, be kind to us, and be gentle to us. Jesus promises that, that through the work, that though the work of this world will be tough and be hard, he's not saying that it won't be hard on this earth. What he is saying is that your worth is not determined by your successes or by your failures. Your worth is determined by the cross, by what I did 2,000 years ago. The cross represents just how much I want you to enter my rest. So while we learn the rhythms of work, of rest and play, our boss is not our CEO, it's not our board, it's not our principal, it's not even yourself. 
our boss and the one that we are yoked to is Jesus. And that's why in the end of verse 30, he says to us that my yoke, it's easy, it's good, and my burden is light. But I'm sure as I've just talked about rest, many of us are kind of asking the question, so Noah, how do we get this rest? What are some like practical tips that I can actually do to get rest? To kind of share how we can, a couple of things, I want to first share two quotes and then share two practical tips on maybe how we can enter into God's rest. The first one is by Charles Spurgeon, a a well-known pastor in the 1800s, and he says this, rest time is not waste time. It is, a, it is an economy to gather fresh strength. It is wisdom to take occasional furlough. In the long run, we shall do more by sometimes doing less. And then the next quote I have is from Chuck Swindoll, another pastor. Um, he says this, All he or God is asking ask is that we come to him, that we spend a while thinking about him, meditating on him, talking to him, listening in silence, occupying ourselves with him, totally and thoroughly lost in the hiding place of his presence. You know, the hard thing about rest is that there is no one way to rest in Jesus. God created us all so differently, and God also gave us schedules that are all very different as well. So I can't give you a tailor-made list of how to get rest, but here are two just simple rhythms that we can put into our lives. The first one is the simple thing called a breath prayer. A breath prayer. A breath prayer is simply a prayer that can be said in one inhale and one exhale. For example, breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, breathe out, I find my rest in you. Let's actually try this together, okay? Don't be shy. Breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, breathe out, I find my rest in you. You can put any two lines in this breath prayer. It's not meant to be like a magical prayer for you, but it's a prayer to slow down. You can put, and the first line usually is a reminder of who God is, Jesus as Lord, Jesus my comforter, Jesus my help. Or this, and the second line is a request made for God, Lord, help me find rest. Lord, please provide this or, or that for me. And so it helps us to do whatever, it helps us to take a break no matter how busy you are. And so if you are the most busy person in this, room, in, in this room right now, you have absolutely no excuse not to try this out. Do it while you're at work when you have a second on your computer. Do it while you are eating your lunch. Do it while you're in your car or on the CTA. Try it out. Rest and remind yourselves of who Jesus is. The second one, I believe, is probably the most difficult one for our generation and our society. And it's this idea of 24-hour Sabbath rest. You know, just to be clear, a Sabbath rest is not just finding two trees and putting a hammock there and laying there for 24 hours. That's not what God is talking about. The goal of Sabbath is this, and I don't have it in the slides behind me, but it's this. The goal of Sabbath is to spend intentional time alone with Jesus, with people you love, and doing things that give you life. Let me just go over that again. It's spending intentional time with Jesus, your Lord, with people in a community that you love and doing things that give you life. We are all different. So for us, finding time with God, maybe it's reading the Bible. Maybe it's solitude. Maybe it's playing music. Maybe it's just taking a walk and reflecting. 
with people you love. Maybe it's going out together as in eating as a community, playing games as a community, doing sports, doing activities, watching movies as a community. And then, then for things that give you life, this list is quite endless. It could be simply cooking, sewing, shopping, going out in nature, doing bird watching, whatever that gives you life, so that you can enjoy time with the things that God has given around you. These are things that we can put in natural rhythms of our lives so that we can find rest and the work, the heavy work that all of us will experience now or later will be manageable and will be easy because we have this rest in Christ. And when God rested on the seventh day of creation, he used that time to reflect and to actually look at creation and enjoy just what he did, to reflect and to remember that it is good, that your work is good, and that you can find your rest in the one who did all the work for you so that we can live now in freedom and in trust in who he is. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your rest. God, forgive us for the moments in our lives where we have just sought rest in other ways. God, I pray that as a people here, as all of us, hopefully all of us are able to have tomorrow off, we're able to take rest in you. That we're able to spend time with you, God, in your word and who you are. That we're able to spend time with people that we love and that we can laugh with and celebrate with. And that we can also just do the things that we appreciate and the things that you have given to us and rest and look back because, God, you are the one that gives us true rest. Help us to find it. Help us to know what that means in your glory, for your purpose, and as your disciple, we pray. Amen. Amen.